irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to L.A. Talk Radio. You're listening to The Dr. Nina Show with Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland, only on L.A. Talk Radio. Hey there, welcome to the Dr. Nina Show. I'm Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland here to give you the skinny on weight loss without dieting and to give you food for thought on all things health related. And to that end, I have a very special guest today, Kristen West. Let me tell you about Kristen. She is, um, in addition to being a plus size model, she is an award winning actress, producer, Screenwriter. In fact, she's got three films coming out this year as an actor. She's playing a scream queen, a possessed wife, and a ghost. That's <laughs> super cool. Um, she is also uh, an advocate for women of all shapes and sizes and blogs for Mogul as an influencer. So welcome, Kristen. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Nina, for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So let's just get right to this whole plus size notion. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of people have, the pro- have a problem with the term plus size model. What are your thoughts on that? The average woman in the U.S. is plus size. The average woman in the U.S. is about five foot four, and size between a size sixteen and eighteen. And I think it's important that the reality of women who shop and spend money is reflected in fashion. So I don't have a term. I don't have a problem with the term because I fit into that category, and so many women fit into that category, and need fashion and to see clothes that reflect where they are at this moment, not necessarily an ideal of what beauty should be. Yes, it really should be called like, you know, average size rather than plus size. No, it's certainly it's certainly true. And one of the things that that's important, we talk about issues of representation. That's that is the zeitgeist in Hollywood right now. It, is that we want to see people of different ethnicities on television. We want to see people of different ages. There's ageism, there's sexism, there's um, prejudice against race. There's also sizeism, and that's people of a certain size are lazy or not taking care of themselves properly or don't have as much money to spend. And that's frankly not true in the fashion industry plus-size clothing sales account for $17 billion. And that market is chronically underserved. And when you get past the numbers of all of that, the average woman who is a mother, who's a worker in this economy, she is underserved by the clothing industry. Yeah, that's... It's an excellent point that there. I hear all the time from people who say, I don't want to shop at Lane Bryant. It's not my style. And I don't want to shop at that. What's that other one that's more for kids? You right. know, wh- where's or my Catherine's or somewhere yeah, like, that. like that? Yeah. So how do, you were telling me before the show that you have been every size. And we were talking about this illusion that so many people have that when they change their weight, they change their lives. So tell us about your experience and what you learned from being everything from from a size 2 to a size, what was it? 20. 20. 
I, I have always struggled with weight, even when I was a kid. And I think I first remember having weight issues when I was around five years old. And it has been kind of a constant thing that I've had to negotiate my whole life. And really, when I have, when I was a teen, I was a size 14W, which there, 14 is kind of the crossover point in fashion. Anything below a 14 is considered a Ms. size. A 14W is considered a women's or a transition into a plus size. When I was at my lowest weight, lowest size, I was a Miss Texas pageant contestant. I'm originally from Texas. I was exercising two hours a day. I was on a thousand calorie diet. Uh, in addition to sleeping eight hours a night, totally out. I had a, had to have a four-hour nap in the middle of the day. It was exhaustive. It was punitive. And I was really only able to reach about a size six. I'm five foot eight. I have a large frame. And compared to other contestants, I just couldn't keep up as much as I wanted to. And I, I was punishing myself for that. I did not, I chose not to stay in the pageant world. And my weight, I like to say I wax and wane with the moon. (laughs) (laughs) I have had higher weights and I've had lower weights. And really, I never found that I had a weight that was particularly attached to my happiness. When I was in the Miss Texas pageant, my grandmother had died on my birthday about six months before. So I was completely aggrieved. And at my happiest points, when everything was right emotionally, you know, there's that saying, fat and happy. (laughs) Well, um, I was fat and happy, and that was okay. And I was fortunate enough uh, in my life to find people that accepted me no matter what size I was. And as long as I could do the work of acting and, and be funny and find characters, I was happy. So it was never tied to being a certain set of measurements. And it was interesting. The only advantage to that certain size, I talked about that 14. I had the most shopping choices at size 14, more than anything else. That was the only advantage to being a particular size because I could shop two departments if I wanted. But the price you paid was really high. Yeah, I mean, it's unsustainable. And we all have a kind of a a set point. Mm -hmm. And we have to respect what our body wants to be. And for some people, that's smaller. And for some people, that's bigger. Right. And you have to look, you really have to not only, there's there's a tendency in our culture to beat ourselves up. We are, and I believe in personal responsibility, but you also have to realize that you come into the world with a certain set of presets. Look at your parents. Look at your grandparents. And look at at what, you know, are they tall? Are they short? Are they large framed? Are they small framed? Do you have family members that are struggling with weight, no matter how much they diet? You really have to observe what you came into the world with. And, you know, as I was saying to you before the show, my ancestors came from Belgium. They were tall, broad, big-boned people. And I've always, you know, when I was... uh, Oh gosh, when I was in eighth grade, I was five foot six, a size 14 with size 11 shoes. So I have always had, I've, I was always a giant compared to people around me, which always caught, you know, it's one thing to be 
the tall girl <laughs> in in school. It's another thing to be the tall big girl. And you have to have a certain compassion and awareness. And one of the best things my mother ever did for me was she took me to this um, small town in, in outside San Antonio. It's called New Braunfels, Texas. It's one of the original German settlements in Texas. And she said, look at the people around you. You know, these are people that have, you know, their, their grandfather, their great-grandfather had emigrated from Germany. And she said, look at the people around you. She said, they were all pretty much tall and, and more, I'll, I'll use the word stately. <laughs> they were all more tall and stately. She says, you, you have to realize that people come in different body shapes and, and you don't live here, so you don't have that reflected back to you. That was one of the best things my mother ever did for me. Very sensitive of her to realize that you needed to see other people who look like you in order to not feel as if there was something wrong with you because you didn't fit in with whatever was happening in San Antonio. Right. You know, there's there's so much about um, reframing and language uh, that can make a difference because people say to me all the time, "Well, how how do I feel good about myself if I'm not that ideal, or how do I feel good about myself while I'm trying to lose weight?" And one, one patient of mine reframed, she said, I'm not fat, I'm fluffy. Oh, I love that. I love that there's a comedian, and I forget his name, who says that. And one thing is that an adjective, when you use an adjective like fat, it can be really damaging because you internalize it into your identity. I am this. When I've had to deal with things that are traumatic for me, or things that are not necessarily conducive to my health, I am experiencing being overweight. If I put a verb in there and distance myself from the adjective, I know that 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 circumstance is transient and something I can manage. Whereas if I say I am, I am fat, or I am, I am late, I am too lazy to exercise, or whatever. I'm experiencing tiredness today that's not conducive to me exercising. It gives you a certain, it makes you more aware and I think more compassionate towards yourself when you don't so quickly adopt a label. I absolutely agree. And if any of you want to talk with Kristen, the number here is 818-602-4929. That's 818-602-4929. Yeah, labels... Labels are so detrimental to our, our, our sense of self, you know, because we generally don't label ourselves in a positive way. Um, so tell me, as an, as an actress, you were talking about, you know, uh, sizeism in Hollywood, and uh, I guess the, the actress in, in This Is Us mm-hmm. is sort of the, the follow-up to Melissa McCarthy. Right. Um, and what 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 kind of bothers me about that show is that her weight is the is the is the issue. It's the plot not, she's line. not a person dealing with something else. She's it's all her her weight is a plot line, and I would like to see her be a a person who's struggling with whatever anyone else is struggling with. Wouldn't that be nice? No, it would totally be nice. And I think one of the things that happens with with the discussion about weight is it's completely decontextualized. You have a weight problem. Well, if you have a weight problem, 
you might have a stress problem because your cortisol levels are spiked and you're craving more fat and sugar. You may have an economic problem because, frankly, 40% of the food in the United States is wasted. The pay gap, and, and I know that weight is not just a female problem, it is a male problem, but there is a significant pay gap. And when you have single mothers trying to raise children in this environment, with this economic environment, with a pay gap, they're going to try and economize food as much as possible. And unfortunately, that's fast food in our country. So there, every problem exists in a sort of a contextual bubble. And we have to understand that any anything that that can affect your eating can be economic and people go through grief you know like I said with my grandmother I was my lowest weight when I was grieving my grand grandmother but I you know I recently had a death and I've gained a little bit of weight and I had you know I had to realize okay I'm going through this process and grief is a thing so you have to realize that your your problems and I'm I'm making air quotes here your problems and your challenges always exist within a context they're not necessarily little neat Boxes, And I'm sure you see that in your practice with people, that one thing kind of boomerangs off the other. Well, I think, you, you know, you, you bring up a, a good point, which is that it's very important to distinguish between overeating and eating the wrong things because you're making bad choices or you only have access to foods that are have very little nutritional value and all of that and eating to resolve something emotionally right you know so that so because you can learn how to um, eat more healthily you can even if you even if you don't have economic circumstances that you can eat them, you're not going to go to Air One or Bristol Farms, right. but maybe you can you can find a way to eat in a healthy way. So people, there's this assumption that people who are overweight or whatever the standard of that is, we talk about context, right. like over what weight? Right. Because you know, in the 1800s, bigger was better. Right. So. Because they had to survive famines and stuff like that, you know. Mm-hmm. You look, you know. Another th- another thing I, I like to say is I'm a Peter Paul Rubens painting come to life. Yay! So, but it's true. People don't understand context. And another thing about that is people people don't understand images are also manufactured. And there is a difference, and a camera will add 10 pounds. There's a, uh, and, you know, well, that's, you know, camera adds 10 pounds. But there's a team of people creating images and advertising that you see. Yes, absolutely. I happen to know a couple of models, and believe me, they would like to look like their own photographs. Mm-hmm. They, they look nothing like the photographs because everything is photoshopped and finessed and everything like that. So we're trying to live up to a standard of appearance that doesn't actually exist in reality. No, it's true. It, it's definitely true. And you think about where you always have to think about what someone's trying to sell you. Someone's trying to sell you an insecurity about yourself because it's a very easy thing to sell. Okay, if I, you know, it, it's it, with diet pills. Okay, well, you know, uh, fat trim 2000, you'll lose 20 pounds in a week and then you'll look like this. You know, is someone trying to sell you, you know, and if you think about any other thing that's not in the weight loss space because it's so emotional, someone trying to sell you uh, makeup kits for your eyebrows. Well, your brows aren't thick enough. 
Oh, and when you get to that point, then you're going to get the life that you want. Then you're going to, if you're not right. with someone, you're going to find someone, you're going to find a partner. If you don't have friends, you're going to have friends. If you're shy, you're going to be outgoing. This idea that changing our weight, it changes our lives is one that I, I particularly like to bring to people's attention because it is, it's a, a lovely illusion, but it is an illusion nonetheless. So getting back to your experiences in, as an actress mm-hmm. and a producer, and, but mostly as an actress, mm-hmm. you know, what have you found to be the biggest challenges and the biggest surprises? It's, uh, it's interesting because there's a, you know, there, there is that term Hollywood fat, that if you're not really real thin, you're considered overweight, obese, whatever. What what has happened in my particular career path is that I I get to play roles that are uncommon. So I am playing a ghost. First of all, I am very pale, so it's easy to make me a paler. Um, but I get to do different kinds of roles. I'm not I'm not objectified sexually to the extent that actresses of a smaller size and what's considered ideal are. I'm perfectly fine with that first time I ever played a romantic lead in a film was two years ago in a sort of an avant-garde experimental film that did really well so I get to do lots of interesting things I don't I'm not necessarily stereotyped and not really very badly typecast either which is interesting and and that's I think an asset to me and really helps me not feel trapped in my body or have to necessarily maintain everything at all times. And it gives me freedom to experiment and gives me more range as an actor because I'm considered not necessarily modelly. I'm considered more, once again, air quotes, real. And that's cool for me. I enjoy that. Well, and in a way, how sad is it that that you have to be not some picture-perfect, rail-thin model to be considered real, to be a person with a a head and a heart, with, you know, ambitions and thoughts and feelings and all kinds of things that make a person a person, as opposed to some object Mm -hmm. for people to look at. Just stand there and look pretty. Right. And one of the things, too, is I, you know, just because a person is of a certain size, it doesn't mean that they're not in touch with their body. I I consider myself a very physical actress. I have a, a big voice. I can make really big movements. Um, you know, I'm really I've had a lot of physical training as an actor, not necessarily stunt training, but in physical theater, things of that nature. So I really know how to use my body to express, and I really rely on it, especially in comedy. And just because a person is of a certain size doesn't mean that they have a a disconnect from their body or they don't care about their body or that their body is, is somehow... Um, I don't want to say the word impaired, but there's not there. People use their bodies in different ways. I think about Chris Farley. You know, you know he had issues, but I mean he was one of the best physical. He had a huge voice. You know, he really put his whole body into his comedy. He was not the ideal male figure at all. 
according to according to yeah. the standards yeah. of his day. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I, I, I think your statistics are really sobering because it's such a reminder that we're trying to. We're all collectively, or so many people out there are collectively trying to reach, uh, change their bodies, and they don't feel like they're good enough until they reach some, some number that is actually abnormal, unachievable, unsustainable, and and it, and focusing on that keeps you from living your life if you're waiting until you get to be a certain size right to feel good about yourself then then you're not living your life your your life is on hold right you're putting an obstacle in your path that is probably not reasonable for you and so many people do that and and that level of self-sabotage keeps like you said keeps people from living their life and in all honesty Happiness is a choice we make each and every day. I could have woken up this morning, God, went, oh my God, it's eight in the morning. <laughs> I'm not necessarily a morning person. And I, you know, it's eight in the morning. I got to get up. I got to move the car. I got to feed the cat. And I could have been really down on today in the process of today and oh my God, and, and had a chip on my shoulder. But, you know, I, I embraced the, oh, it's morning. Wonderful. Yay. I made that choice to be happy this morning. I made choices each and every day to be happy or not and if you don't do the inner work the outer work doesn't really matter you're still going to be an angry bitter person whether you're a size 2 or a size 20 you're still going to have issues with with your parent or your boss or your significant other whether you're a size 0 or a size 8 it doesn't if you don't really deal with that and speaking about um even the mechanics of eating i've discovered this in acting Mm -hmm. is that you know that we have a tendency we have a lot of unresolved aggression especially women yes because we're not allowed to be angry and we're not you know and a lot of us cry when we really want to be angry and express our anger and we don't feel heard and even the mechanics of eating, it's a bite. It's like this, you know. And sometimes I think I had to realize that sometimes when I was really ticked off, I was needing that biting thing to feel like I had some power over my circumstances. And I broke, I am now aware of that habit. And I've lessened that to a great degree in my own life. But you have to understand that you're a human being. And you're also a human evolving. You know, our ancestors were running around with spears and javelins trying to hunt buffalo and caribou and whatever. And then some of us were evolved to hunter-gatherers. And we have evolved over time. But there's a, there's a deep part of ourselves that has a certain amount of aggression that has to be dealt with. Yes, it's so interesting because I have what I call the food and mood formula where I correlate certain types of foods to certain types of moods. So creamy ice cream is associated with a need for comfort. Bulky filling foods is associated with loneliness, emptiness, disconnection. And crunchy is is anger. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, anything with a bite and a crunch. And so often, especially women, because we are socialized that, you know, don't, don't be mad. That's not nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, end up eating our feelings and then getting mad at ourselves for eating. Right. Well, I think of just recently Tina Fey and the uh, SNL skit right after the Charlottesville 
protests of her and her sheet caking movement where she just went to town on the sheet cake and and in front of in front of everybody and she was pointing out exactly that we take because we feel disempowered whether it's politically socially economically that we feel disempowered we take it out on our food a woman will take it out on her food and it was a real eye opener for me because I don't consider Tina Fey you know she's beautiful she's you know obviously takes good care of herself she's and once again air quotes she's normal size what we would perceive to be normal size and here she's you know pointing out that she's she's making a joke out of what's a serious issue is that emotional eating and i thought it was really you know a good thing for her to address in a way that was comic and palatable and and really topical i mean one of the things that I talk about a lot is how, as a culture and as a society, we we make feelings into something bad and scary. You know, like, oh, you're angry. Oh, you need anger management class. You know, oh, you're sad. Oh, you're depressed. You're depressed. Take a pill. Um, so everything is pathologized and made into something negative as opposed to let's own what it is let's explore and own a lot of people don't even know what they're feeling that's why i developed the food and mood formula Uh, let's let's figure out what's going on inside instead of focusing so much on the outside and when you take a different stance with yourself you feel better no matter what your weight is because if you don't if you uh, hating your body is not the path to loving yourself it's absolutely true because one of the things is there's going to be you're going to have difficult people in your life like i said difficult boss maybe your relationship with your siblings isn't great you already have enough to deal with plus the everyday hubbub of you know picking up the kids from school going to the bank making sure the rent's paid on time whatever your set of circumstances are if you add that self-pressure to there it's it's not going to help you and I think checking in with your feelings, and I have to, even as an actress who I'm, I'm aware of the palette of feelings. <laughs> the palette of feelings. I, I'm aware what. Can what, you mix them? You can. Mm-hmm. You can totally mix them. You can, you can take them up. You can take them down. I, I'm comfortable with, with feelings. But sometimes, it's, um, it happens that you don't always feel in in a safe space to emote properly and that's why at times you have to invest in in your friendships and having good confidants and if it's a really serious problem you have to invest in a therapist and to have that space and not hold it all inside all the time yeah and and just just on that note, I want to say my little spiel about therapy, because people still feel so much shame about coming to therapy. So here's how I describe therapy. Mm-hmm. So Michelangelo, as, as in Michelangelo, the great artist, was supposedly asked, Michelangelo, how do you turn those great big blocks of stone into statues? And he, because if you've ever seen the David, oh my God, I could have stood there and looked at that statue for hours. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> he said, I do not turn the stone into statues. I free the statues from the stone. And that's therapy. You chip away at that which is keeping you stuck and locked in place can't move, can't do anything and to, and, until you free yourself so you don't change into someone else. You become who you actually are. 
gave me a great opening. I just had to give my therapy spiel. So, well, no, I, I, I've heard that about Michelangelo and his processes, and it's absolutely true. Is that you're, you're in a constant state of self becoming and self discovering. And in all honesty, when I look back at my life and and my my years of experience in, in dealing with certain things, is I had to really have compassion for the pageant girl that I was at one point. And under and understand the lessons that it gave me, and understand you know some of the awkwardness I experienced when I was in school. Understand what that gave me, and you really have to you know like you said chip away at that in a way that what's healthy. And as long as you come out feeling better about yourself and more empowered, and you're learning and taking the lesson, there are no there are very few mistakes. There are opportunities to grow, to evolve. And to be a person in the world. And in all honesty, I think it's so much more important than a size or an image that you have to maintain. Are you doing good in the world? Is your day better because you smiled at someone? Is your day better because you helped a, someone get something that they need? Is someone sleeping better because you're in the world? That's the ultimate test of what a good person is, not a size, not a not an ideal. Yeah, you cannot measure your self-worth on the bathroom scale. Now, someone wrote in because I sent a, um, an email to my subscribers and let them know you're coming on the show. And someone wrote in and said, can you ask Kristen about um, health? Isn't the body positivity movement um, promoting bad health? I'm paraphrasing what she said. But I, I hear that a lot, and I wondered if you can can speak to that. Part of it is this idea that if you're somehow you're – Healthy if you're thin, you know, thin, which is may or may not be true, and not healthy if you're not thin. But I'd like to hear what you think about that. As I said before about looking at your relatives, you also have to look at the health risks that your relatives have. Um, my great-grandmother died of diabetic shock. So I have to check in on my blood sugar levels pretty much, you know, at least keep a maintenance on that. Um, surprisingly, not a lot of heart disease in my family. So look at the people. One of the things is you do have to, like I said, you do have to have a certain level of personal responsibility that helps you to make the right decisions about your health. So, yes, it does not, having a, a plus size and a body positivity movement does not take away from personal responsibility at all. However, you also have to be mentally healthy as much as you have to be physically healthy. And if you are constantly frantic about maintaining a certain weight, if you're starving yourself to maintain a certain weight, if you're, and even economically healthy, if you're spending hundreds of dollars on diets, on unnecessary surgeries to maintain a certain image of yourself and you're not you know, like if you're putting yourself in ghastly amounts of debt to maintain an image that is not healthy either so it it's all about balance you know socrates says know thyself that's important that's the mental health and avoid excess you know don't eat a dozen cookies but certainly don't don't you know flagellate yourself if you're eating one Everything exists in a, a spectrum of balance. And you also have to realize another thing is that with society itself, we have, you know, I pointed out the issue about economics. I pointed out the, you know, the issue about stress. We are only as healthy 
together as a society as we demand to be. So there, we do have significant challenges with food as a society that also needs to be accounted for. No one exists in a bubble. Yeah. Socrates, I believe, also said, um, beware the emptiness of a barren life. Yes. And uh, when you are focused so much on your weight as the determination of your self-esteem and your weight as the, that which is going to make you acceptable or not or that which is going to open the door to whatever it is that you don't getting whatever it is you don't have then you you do have an empty life and sometimes you know when we have an empty lives it's counterintuitive but then we use food for fun um, right it's a pleasure center for us and one thing I've had to learn is to give myself other other pleasure points. And frankly, that can be expensive. It's so easy, you know, to go to a, a restaurant. I mean, they have like these, you go to a, like a chain restaurant and it's like two for 30. You can go out and date night, get out of there with two, an appetizer, two plates, a dessert and a drink for 30 bucks. That's, that's very easy. Um, you know, getting a good massage in LA is probably at least $75 getting you know um, having a night out and, and spending the night at a great great hotel is probably a two to three hundred dollar proposition and a lot and some of that is out of reach for a lot of people so you have to find smaller ways that are non-food based to to self-care for yourself which I don't think we give enough attention to either so what are your favorite self-care, non-food self-care things to do? I always make a few minutes each day just to reflect about what I'm grateful for and what went right. Because I could focus so much about what went wrong, and there's plenty to look at. But I always, I always do that, and I consider that a, a point for me of self-care because that keeps me going. Um, I do like a good massage. I actually, <laughs> I actually got a great foot massage the other day, and that really helped me a lot. Um, I sometimes go to um, Koreatown to some of the Korean spas. Those are fun, and they're actually very affordable. And I also, you know, sometimes you have to feed your spirit as much as you feed your body. And so I enjoy going to great art museums. I actually went to the L.A. Opera uh, a few days ago and actually saw a opera of the movie Persona, which was fascinating. Interesting. So you have to feed your spirit as well, yeah. just as much as you feed your body. Yeah, great advice. So tell us some Hollywood stories. What what feed 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 us a little bit with okay. some humor. Um, tell us what what are what's the most kooky or interesting or just bizarre thing that has happened to you in your career. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let me let me think about let me think about that really quick. Well, you know, I had the opportunity to actually be on the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills once, and I met uh, Carlton Gebbia and Yolanda Foster, and I um, I got to actually be uh, Carlton's psychic one day. Um, there Wait, we, are you telling me that desp that it's not real? <laughs> well, what I'm telling you is that um, I've always been interested in metaphysical stuff. I'm a horror scream queen. I know things about this. And <laughs> and we had someone that was very camera shy that didn't want to be on camera. And so 
I I uh, I was on the Real Housewives for one episode, and that was that was really fun and interesting. And they're both very interesting ladies, and I always reflect fondly on that time. And um, you know, it, I have I have you know shot movies in Big Bear in the snow and. It was interesting. Uh, this film is called Seeking Valentina. We just wrapped on the film festival circuit. And it was a, a sort of a David Lynchian sort of... Uh, it asked, It had more questions than it had answers. And so um, one of the features of the property that we were on, actually, they had a pet cemetery. <laughs> and it was super creepy. <laughs> interesting. And I play a lot of ghosts. Mm-hmm. And one big thing is... Usually in the horror films, because I'm not that sort of petite, um, petite skinny girl, I usually don't get killed. I am usually the killer or something, or I have a part in the killing. <laughs> and I will tell you, I realized something being in, in, in the spirit room, which is um, a film that's right now in post-production. I realized I have a fear of becoming a ghost. <laughs> But wait, as a ghost, you have more power. You have the most power that, of, of all your roles as a ghost. I know. It's so weird. What's up with that? There's something very wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. And I, I, I don't know if there's a therapist qualified to talk to me about that. <laughs> I don't know that it's a problem. Right, right. You know, maybe it's not a problem. Maybe I'm problem. I am experiencing fear about being a ghost. Is it fear about being a ghost, or is it fear of your power? That's a very good question. I'm going to have to think about that. Mm. But it, it's come up a few times, and it was very palpable when I was dealing dealing with being in this film, and it, it was interesting. And you know, it's funny. Food is not just to eat, especially in the horror world. We do a lot of um, um, prop work, I guess art department work with film. Uh, one of the formulas for blood is chocolate syrup and red food coloring. Really? So mm-hmm. blood is yummy in in horror. In yeah. horror. You know, if you're not if you don't want to buy buckets of stage blood, that's a really quick way to make blood. Um, I recently worked with James Balsamo and he has a, a feature film that he's editing called The Lich. The Lich is a a warlock that travels time and space and exacts his revenge. And one of the things that happened was um, he had to make some projectile uh, boogers, projectile snot. So of course That's we're not a new one, right? So of course we're not going to extract real mucus from real people. We actually made. I saw him make it out of cottage cheese and food color. Oh, and so we had. Yeah, there was this bathroom that got inundated with with sludge and cottage cheese mucus. So, you know, sometimes you can play with your food and it can be a really interesting life for you. And that's kind of part been a, a big part of my life in horror films. Or if cottage cheese is a problem for you, just see the movie. Think about mm-hmm. <laughs> what that mucus is really made out of and you'll be off of cottage cheese in no time. Exactly. Exactly. Or chocolate syrup, for that matter. That's true. Well, you know, I guess if you put some red food coloring on it and then put it on your ice cream, you may <laughs> you may create a a impression there that you'll never want to touch either of those things again. Aversion therapy, yes, absolutely. Aversion therapy, I like it. 
So, and I should say that um, I think the movie you mentioned has won some awards on the, on the circuit. So, I think you should talk about that. Thank you. Well, Seeking Valentina has been one of the most successful films I've been a part of. It's it's screened in the U.S. It's screened in India. It's screened in Europe. And I believe the the actual award total. I was reminded of yesterday. We won 17 awards, including best short film awards across the world. World. We have 20 additional nominations, and I believe we've gotten into 30 film festivals. I'd have to check that number. But um, what's interesting about that film in particular, it was written and directed by Armin Nasseri, and he and I co-produced it together. And Armin was very committed to not having a stereotypical thin lead actress. He wanted an average-looking woman, and he put me in the romantic lead of that film, which was a very big stretch for me as an actor because it's not usually what I'm asked to do. And the film is um, about a... um, a widower who has room in his house and he takes in a tenant and then reality for him starts to get a little shaky and you don't know whether what he's experiencing is a ghost, a hallucination or his new tenant is some sort of shady person and I play mm. the tenant named Valentina the film is called Seeking Valentina and it has a very Lynchian Twin Peaks feel it's been compared to that Ooh, I have to see that. That sounds really interesting. It is. And another special and interesting thing about that film, to Armin Nasseri's credit, besides thinking about representation of the female body, he also was very committed to having a diverse cast. Um, And Armin is Persian-American, Iranian-American. And as you know, Iran had our diplomatic relationship with Iran sort of goes up and down, up and down, up and down, depending on who's in charge at the moment. And um, he really wanted to show Middle Eastern people as not just terrorists. Mm. Because he was born in born in North Carolina, raised in North Carolina, raised here. And he wanted to show um, Middle Eastern Americans as everyday people instead of terrorist or uh, a store clerk. And another thing about this film that's very... Um, special to me and to Armin is that we had a gender balanced cast and crew. We didn't have three men and one woman on the screen. We had we had everything gender balanced including our our below the our our crew, the faces you don't see. And it was refreshing to work on a project like that. And especially in light of everything that's been happening and, and the discourse we've been having in Hollywood, not about representation and how women are treated. I I sincerely hope that Armin's vision of the world that I, I helped him create is is the new norm. Yes, as do I, and as a millennial, mm-hmm. right? You are you are a person who has lived in a, a changing world, very rapidly changing world, um, over your lifetime. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. It, you know, one of the the um, hallmark moments of my life was um, I was interviewing for college the day before September 11th. I was interviewing for Harvard and Yale and and um, it, the next day the the attack happened and it was a very sobering moment for me because I knew the world had fundamentally changed we had not had this level of of intrusion upon our our country ever and 
when I was first living in California, the, the housing bubble exploded, and people were moving out in droves. And it, those two things were a very, very um, thought-provoking and not only thought-provoking, but challenging for me to deal with all of those circumstances and navigate those. And I often feel that millennials don't get enough credit for having those circumstances in the backdrop of our lives. And, you know, like I said before, you know, you do have personal responsibility, but you're also shaped by your environment and you're shaped by your circumstances. And, and, and the millennial generation runs from about 19, birth dates from 1980 to 2000. So if you didn't experience that as late high school or adult, your parents were experiencing that when you were a kid. And you may have added stress because your parent was navigating a, a mortgage situation or your parent was impacted by 9-11 some way or you had a family member impacted. And I really feel passionate about the disc- as much as I feel passionate about body positivity. I also walk through the world as a millennial and and feel that sometimes we get a bad rap that we don't necessarily deserve. Absolutely, uh, I think I think bringing up Socrates again. It may have been Socrates. It may have been Aristotle. It was one of them. Uh, there's this there's the, well now I've given it away now it's not going to work because what I was going to say was there's someone who wrote mm-hmm. oh these young people today mm-hmm. their music is terror their music is noise they have no respect for authority they they're lazy on and on and on and you think oh they're just talking about the millennials and turns out it was written by either Socrates or Aristotle or someone like that. So I think every generation goes through that sort of finger-pointing of, ugh. (laughs) Right, well, there's always tension. There's always tension, and the generation gap is not a new thing. It's just something that we've we've rediscovered in modernity. But there's so so many more points of, of potential agreement than there is disagreement. You know, you think you talk, you know, when you're talking about and not to get incredibly political, but, you know, the tax plan affects everybody. What deductions you can take. It's going to affect your parent just as much as it's going to affect you. It may affect you differently, but it's still going to affect you. Um, you know, and I know you know, you're uh, uh, in you're a, prof- a professional in the mental health space. Your access to mental health care is going to be important to you. And it's going to be important to your parent or to your sibling or to your grandparent even. And we all, part of living in a society is that we all, we all have certain agreements we have to make with each other. And there's a negotiation process. And that's, that's part of living together. And we're not always going to agree on the same things. And we're not always going to have the same methods. But, but you know, fundamentally, I think if we all approach each other, regardless of what age we are, regardless of what gender we are, regardless of what race or creed we are, if we all pr- approach each other with a fundamental goodwill and realize that we're all in the same, literally the same, well, not literally, we're not all in the boat, but, it, you know, the figuratively. cliche, figuratively the same boat, I think we would have a much healthier national dialogue and person to person dialogue about things. 
Very well said. And I, I couldn't help but think, as you were talking, these are you're talking about some weighty matters, some mm-hmm. heavy issues. But while, if you're thinking about these things, you're not thinking about the number on, on the scale. Mm-hmm. So if you want to distract yourself from feeling bad about yourself because of what you weigh, give some thought to what's going on in your world, not your just your personal world, but the, the greater world that we're all a part of, um, the figurative boat that Kristen just mentioned. Because when you think about other things, it, it, it gets it gets your mind going. It gets it makes you think. It makes you take action, possibly, and that is a lot more like living life. Uh, focusing on your weight and getting on the scale five times a day, that and not eating carbs or whatever, you know, that's existing your life. And the point of life is to be lived and enjoyed. And I like the point you make because one of the other things that being in pageant taught me was that you do, you know, a lot of pageant people have a, a cause that they adopt and they work for. And when you do have something in your life that 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 is meaningful to you, a cause, whether it's building homes for the homeless or hunger activism or if it's animal activism, whatever it is, if you have something that's bigger than you that you can reference when when you're down on yourself, it will prevent you from doing a lot of stupid, self-defeating, self-sabotaging things. And for me, one of the ways that I've I've made peace, you know, you talk about the diet war. One of the ways I've made peace with it is realizing there's a lot of kids going to bed hungry at night in this country. At the height of of recession, it was one out of four children. Right now, the statistic is one out of six. That's still too high for the richest nation in the world with 40% food waste. So I devote a significant amount of my time to making sure that people know these, these facts and working to alleviate that hunger in any way that I can. And when you have something like that that's greater than you, it can be deeply healing and, and therapeutic. And, and I, I think I, you, can't, you cannot press this home enough is that you really have to understand that there are not only are there realities larger than you, but there are things that you can do that can, can reverb and, and make bigger impact than, than, than losing a pound or two. Kristen, not only are you a Rubens painting come to life, you are a Renaissance woman and so thoughtful, and uh, you've given us a lot of food for thought today. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Please let people know how they can find you. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I'm I'm thrilled to be here to talk to you and and, um, learn about what you were up to as well, and I applaud what you're doing to to make us all healthier, not just in body, but in mind and in spirit and if you want to know more about me uh, visit www.kristinwest.net i'm also on twitter at at kristen underscore west and on instagram at kristen underscore west underscore actress and if you really enjoy hearing me speak um, i will be on la talk radio channel one later tonight with my brilliant co-host Judy Goss on What Women Want Talk Radio, 
We air Wednesdays at 6 p.m. And men, you can listen too if you really want the 411 about what's going on in women's heads. This is a great life hack for you all. We don't just talk about girl stuff too. We actually have a lot of business people on. on um, we've had Jean Chatsky, financial expert, Jenna Wolf from the Today Show. We have a lot of different experts on. Um, so please uh, join us later today, too, on LA Talk Radio, which is our favorite station. That's right. Thank you again. It has been an absolute pleasure. And that's our show for today. Join me next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific here on LA Talk Radio. And have a wonderful week. You're listening to The Dr. Nina Show with Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland, only on L.A. Talk Radio.